By staying home, you can not only protect your health and that of those around you, but ensure that our healthcare professionals and our healthcare systems can focus on those who need their help. Hello and welcome to Corona Movie Club, my entertainment world's answer to social isolation. Um, so we have a schedule of movies and we're all going to watch them independently in our own socially isolated homes and then three times a week we're going to get together over the internet and talk about them just like your mom's old book club used to do. Um, except now there's nothing old about it because it's all over the internet and we're all social isolating so that we don't help spread the coronavirus around the universe. Um, so we have people from all over North America who are participating and there's going to be different people on each call from the uh, core group. And so every episode, I'm going to come in and introduce the film that we're going to be watching, as well as the names of the people that are going to be on that week's call or that episode's call, because we're going to be doing this three times a week. Um, so I hope you guys enjoy. Let's go to the movies. It's something to do. So on this episode of Corona Movie Club, we are talking about Bong Joon-ho's 2013 science fiction action film, uh, Snowpiercer, which stars number one Chris, also known as Chris Evans, if you don't know your Chris's, um, and a bun- bunch of other awesome people, <laughs> um, uh, including Song Kang-ho, who you probably know from uh, Parasite, which is also probably how you know Bong Joon-ho. Snowpiercer is um, his first English language film with like major Hollywood stars. Uh, that came out quite a few years before Parasite, so if you didn't know who he was before Parasite, shame on you for not seeing Snowpiercer. Um, who else is in this? Tilda Swinton, Jamie Bell, Octavia Spencer, John Hurt, Ed Harris, all sorts of cool people. Um, it's really interesting film, um, and I think we have a really interesting conversation about it, specifically um, in context of having him won- having won all the Oscars this year, um, comparing contrasting this film and Parasite, which is obviously a very different genre, but has some of the uh, some similar themes running through it. So we had a great time with this really very good movie that you should all check out. Um, on this call is myself, Kelly Bedard, as well as David Armstrong, Saya Floyd, Nicole Falgu, Matthew Yipchuk, Steve Vargo, Brie Garcia, and Susan Bond. Okay, hope you enjoy. I'll just say I saw it when it came out originally. I did not know who Bong Joon-ho was, but I saw Chris Evans and I saw the beard and that was literally why I watched this movie. I'm very glad I did because um, I obviously have appreciated Bong Joon-ho's films ever since, but still I rewatched it and like that beard though. It was nice. I appreciate this point for the following reasons. I I was I got into like a lar- fairly large debate with a friend recently about uh, Chris Evans, as you know, I'm always debating about Chris Evans apparently because he's number one, Chris. Um, and I think wrong, it's, but okay. Okay, fine. All right, whatever. But I maintain Evans is number one, Chris. We can debate this some other time. And have both. One of the one of the criteria or one of the pieces of evidence I use in saying that Chris Evans is at the very minimum more interesting than people think he is um, is that he chose to be in this movie and Mm -hmm. I think it's really 
an interesting career move. It was happening, of course, for the last 10 years, 10, like 12 years, really, 13. He's had to make every career decision he's had to do has been forced in between and like two weeks off he has between Marvel films. So he has a very limited amount of time and he has to really pick and choose. And he chose this like kind of weird, not kind of weird, very weird sci-fi movie that was the first English language movie from Bong Joon-ho. And I think because he was in it, because his face was on the poster, they were eventually able to get wide release. So there's a bit of a story there. And then like it was able to be sold because Chris Evans signed on. I think that like reveals something interesting about him and his taste. And I think he gets credit for doing this film. But then my friend was saying, well, no, like Bong Joon-ho was a huge deal in Korea. And it wasn't that notable for a star like Chris Evans to do this movie. And I just want to have a conversation about, I think it's notable. Do you guys think it's notable for Chris Evans to have done this movie? I think so. I think so, yeah. It's kind of outside of what you would expect for him. Because, I mean, the first thing that you think of when you think Chris Evans, as you kind of pointed out, Kelly, was Marvel, where you see his physique. You see he's a jokey, you know, old man in a young man's body. And then you have a complete shift in Snowpiercer yeah, where he's not relying on the comedic aspects of things. You don't see his physique. Like they make a very, very big point of having him in multiple layers. So he's focused only on the acting. And um, I think that alone makes it stand out. Well, there was actually a point, like, apparently, because he was in between Marvel movies, um, they had to, like, not bulk him down because he obviously couldn't bulk down, but they had to like dress him in a way that you couldn't notice his muscles because he was supposed to have been in the back of the train and starving for 17 years. And it's like, you still like obviously can notice that, but it's like the fact that he really wanted to do that. And like, they like worked around that, um, which, you know, was nice. But then there's always the idea of like, kind of like the white Western male star that kind of like leads a film. Like uh, Zhang Yimo did like a film, Flowers of War, where Christian Bale was like the face of the film. And that's kind of like how it got really widely distributed in America. And so like, I'm sure Bong Joon-ho obviously was like a huge name in Korea, but like, I think, and unfortunately it's the Weinstein Company, but like the Weinstein Company really helped pick it up because Chris Evans was in it, so. I, Thanks, I, will, I will also say though that we also have John Hurt and Ed Harris who are also mm-hmm. very very big actors mm-hmm. um, John Hurt was yeah. in like the alien and like that that's a huge it's a huge grab I would say until just Winton of course but mm-hmm. she's known to go out of her box all the time basically yeah Harris does a lot too I think yeah I think all of those what, what I think is interesting about Chris Evans is that I, he's developing a little bit more of this reputation now that he has a bit more freedom but certainly at the time all of those other actors do have a reputation for doing passion projects and indie films and sort of like weird off beaten path things that they want to do because they have longer careers and a little bit more clout and can play along around a little bit um, whereas Chris Evans really, uh, this was sort of like him showing his taste in projects a little bit early on, um, which I just think is kind of interesting. Um, but also, did anyone read the like crazy Weinstein Company sort of backstory with this film and the distribution? No. Kind of. What is it? Enlighten us. It's a good old Wikipedia story. It's uh, so Weinstein apparently wanted he had acquired the distribution rights for a wide release and then um, demanded that 20 minutes be cut and that monologues be added to the front and the back of the films. And uh, Bong Joon-ho just flat out said no. 
and there was this whole fight about it and eventually Weinstein only released the, the movie in eight theaters world like worldwide maybe just nationwide but still only eight theaters and um because Bong Joon-ho refused to give him what he wanted for wide release and then eventually because the film there was like an online petition for the Bong Joon-ho like full edit and then um because it was so well reviewed and so popular at the eight theaters it was at it ended up getting a wide release with um none of the changes that Weinstein wanted but he wanted to butcher the film and Bong Joon-ho wouldn't let him which is interesting for like he didn't have much clout in in Hollywood yet and he put his foot down anyway which is really cool was this the edit where like he had the fish scene <laughs> Juho had to be like my father was a fisherman and then they asked him about it later and he's like yeah I made that up like was that this film yeah <laughs> is it I've never heard that story that's crazy it's yeah but I do have questions about the fish scene I hope we're gonna talk about oh yeah what fish is about. <laughs> well then let's talk about it who wants to talk about the fish scene <laughs> are we t- which fish scene uh, the, the one I have questions about is the <laughs> dipping the, fi- the mm-hmm. knife in the fish, or the axe in the fish before the bloodletting. Oh, I mean, it was, it was very, it was clearly symbolic of something, but I, I was having trouble latching onto what that was. Perhaps, uh, uh, in, uh, sorry, knifing into the head of the fish, because it was mainly the head of the fish, um, as a symbol to the head of the train, perhaps. Um, the fish rocks just, from the head. <laughs> but it was like their enemies though like that's why I was like these guys are with the person in the head of the train so it was kind of weird that they would do that it was, uh, it's a weird question or maybe it's a symbol in some way I didn't get it I didn't take it as a symbol of anything. I'm clearly not a thoughtful, but I just thought, because before they're like, the guns are fake, and they had the scene where Chris Evans like pulls it, they're like, oh, there's no bullets. So I thought it's like, no, these are real axes. Right. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if you need to prove the axes are real, but I, that's the only thing I could think of, because I, I was also like, I don't get it. Great mind, single like, Saya. <laughs> I thought it was just like an atmospheric thing to embed mm-hmm. me with dread. Fair. Very possible. Yeah, like there was a, a lot. Like a threat sort of logistically about this film that I didn't understand, especially in act one. So at a certain point, I kind of just like let go and stop trying to question everything and work out, wait, but like, how did that? And then why, how did that happen? And why are they there and what's happening? And I just kind Where of- Where like, did man. everyone go? Yeah. That was my question yeah. most of the time. Right. Where did all the kids go? Where did all, you know- Where, where was the cattle? Where was the living cattle? That was my question. That's a, a very good question. Was he eating sleep? steak? Cow steak, you mean? <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I was wondering, like, how technologically advanced are these people? Like, maybe some of it was, like, grown in labs? I mean, it's supposed to be 2014. Te- 2014 was when the Earth froze over. It sh- shouldn't be that more 17. advanced than we are now. Well, right. plus yes, but Ed Harris is a crazy genius man. <laughs> true. That's true. They were curing upside-down meat, though, so it yeah. has to be an actual animal. Mm-hmm. Out is, there. Otherwise, it's just in a petri dish and in a yeah, it wouldn't have legs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> My thing is there when you see in as soon as uh, as soon as they actually blow up the train, you see several other cars. Like there's a lot of cars other than what you see them physically walk through. Yeah. My thought yeah. is like that was kind of their way of explaining the cows must be on one of these other trains that you don't get to see. <laughs> well, yeah, because, like, 
Well, like, where were they sleeping? I think that was the one thing that really hit me, that we didn't see them walk through, like, any sleeping quarters, unless, right. like, everyone just, like, tucked into the walls or something. Oh, for the for the nicer cars, you mean? Yeah, just, like, yeah. yeah. I mean, it is only a $40 million movie, which sounds like <laughs> a lot of money, but isn't a lot of money for a big sci-fi blockbuster, so they had to pick and choose, and sure. apparently, like, the hair salon <laughs> and things like that were, like, the more important cars to montage through than the uh, cattle I guess yeah, his idea was definitely a lot larger because when you think about it you're they're really making a point of talking about the useless excesses of the front of the 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 head of the train so it would make sense to me that they wouldn't go into practicality by showing where all the cows live Mm -hmm. they'd show the you know sillier stuff like the sauna or the pool instead of where everybody's sleeping where everyone's getting their food yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, because also the like how how things happen is sort of I think of like the the behind the scenes of like a cruise ship, for example, it's very specifically hidden from the passengers. Um, so that stuff wouldn't have been um, like accessible to the passengers. So it probably wouldn't be in the main um, like the main corridor access. The way and he was just walking as straight down the main hall. Mm-hmm. Right. And we don't really need to know why the the tail section, well, we don't need to know why the head's food is made or how it's made because the only real issues that we have as far as the tail section getting their food is the shock value of what the protein blocks are made of. So even that's the, the only vehicle for the food coming up is for that shock value of this is how bad these things were treated for 17 years. I did like that the rave car was right by the head of the train. Like, that seemed like a choice. (laughs) (laughs) Does anyone else have any, like, major points that they wanted to talk about? I got major Fable of the Belly Coriolanus vibes. Major vibes. The entire time. Like, to the point where I actually started writing down notes because I guess that's who I am so like the first thing that came up first thing out of um, Mason's mouth is that they were suckling on the generous pity of the uh of the head of the train and then she starts talking about hats versus shoes a shoe can't be a hat I can't be a shoe um and it just comes up in almost every speech that she gives in that very disorienting Yorkshire accent. So, like, the water coming from the mouth, uh, cut out Wilfred's tongue. It's all very, it's all very body politicky. Hmm. That's, that's the main takeaway for me. <laughs> yeah, I, I always see, I see this movie as a, you know, like, it's a dystopian. And a lot of dystopians have to really lay out how the world works and um, how the law is placed, how security is placed, how, like, how everything is put together and how everything works. So we have to get that from somebody. And that was, uh, I guess, a good way of explaining, like, this is where you guys are. This is how the things are. Like, this is, this is how the way things are. You have to deal with it. Sorry. <laughs> Speaking of that metaphor, I was wondering what you guys thought of the very ending, that like long 
kind of Ed, Ed Harris speech where he goes in and he kind of just reinforces everything that we've heard for the last two hours. Yeah, the uh, just the reveal of the um, that uh, what is Gilliam, Gilliam and Wilfred are working together um, to make this revolt is such a big shocker for uh, Curtis um, during this movie. Um, but also just like they plan for him to be the leader. So it's like they plan to revolt and for him to be the leader at the same time, which is a weird decision because he could have died during that whole revolt um, in some way. But um, anyway, it's more of the shock value of, for him thinking that it was a revoltable time. I thought that the plan was less that Curtis would take over and more like they didn't expect Curtis to win. I thought the plan was basically have Curtis start this already previously damned rebellion with the hopes that he would die so that they could go to the tail section and go, look, y'all, y'all tried it again. Yeah. You failed again, so stop trying now. I wondered about that because I couldn't tell if that was a lie because I think what was great about Ed Harris's speech was there was like a lot of truth. Like he had the line about like the two arms holding a woman, which was like when Curtis was like, oh, you were in cahoots with Gilliam. But how much else of that was truth? Because um, his assistant or whatever, I think her name was Claude. Um, mm -hmm. She didn't shoot, like she had a gun. She could have just killed Chris Evans before he got in with but instead he invited him out to dinner and so i was one of the things i couldn't figure out I'm like was this actually the plan did they actually need somebody to succeed them because um ed harris wasn't immortal but or was this like did they shift the plan and at what point did they shift it to include chris evans and that was one thing that i kind of struggled with i think I the think shift was that that scene where 74 percent were supposed to die and didn't yeah. but didn't they <laughs> sorry like during the revolt, a lot of people did die. So that like that's part of their plan to for population um, control. I um, thought it kind of shifted when um, after, like they killed Gilliam because Chris Evans Curtis he wasn't supposed to actually have made it that far. So like when they got to like the fish blood scene, like they I think were supposed to like have died there, and the fact that he kept going, they probably were like, well, we got to readjust what we're gonna <laughs> do. So like now. I guess he can like succeed if he makes it all the way here. Um, it mm -hmm. seems like poor planning, but like. Or if it was a test all along. Yeah. Uh, I don't to see think that they test lead, like that though. Or I know. I'm, listen to yeah. me going into the mind of <laughs> Ed Harris. Um, it seems like a seems like a really tenuous test. <laughs> like yeah. if it's kind of like you're you're banking on a lot of different variables that I don't know that Ed Harris, who seems like he's very clearly, I love that we're calling him Ed Harris, Wilford <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. has, has built this magical train that is going to get these people through at, at the very least 17 years and into the, you know, infinite future at this point um, stages to, to think that he wouldn't think through every single avenue of what could go wrong with this test to me, seems like it's almost too sloppy for mm. Wilford to have actually conceived. Mm. But I mean, well, it's it's, it's him wrong. and Gilliam though, so I don't know. Like, Gilliam seems to be the brains around the control of the population, um, and he and uh, 
Ed Harris is, or Wilfred is the, um, is the brains on the, uh, the mechanics of the working of the train. Um, so I guess that's all I meant. Is it feasible that he was being groomed to be like the successor to, to Gilliam? And oh, then yeah, just perhaps. along the way, they were like, oh, well, he's Ooh. dead and I'm going to die eventually. So why not? You can be me. Yeah, but then That's like, sad. who takes Ed Harris? Is it? Is it? Is, are the kids the ones that just do Ed Harris's <laughs> job at the front? The two kids. They oh yeah, seem what to happens when they get too big? They just like kill them or something? They get new kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they for sure kill them from the front. Yeah. 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 Wait, like in a really sad end of movie note. So like, I get it. So beautiful. Like the train, they open up. They can sustain life. Like there's a polar bear. Those kids are gonna die. Like, there's no food, there's no shelter, or are they going to sleep in the tree? I don't know. It was, like, such a beautiful ending, and then I'm just like, these children are going to die, and I feel bad. That polar bear is totally going to eat them. <laughs> oh, yeah. Or, Although or, it was so nice to see a healthy, like, thriving polar bear. <laughs> it's fiction. Oh. Yeah. Well, that's sort of one of the interesting things about this movie, is that, like, it, the whole catastrophic beginning comes with trying to solve climate change. Um, it's like this like theoretically well-intentioned kind of like, I mean, it's a shortcut, which is what gets them in trouble in the first place. But like the idea is they're trying to save the planet, um, which is why we are not accustomed to seeing thriving polar bears anymore. <laughs> also, did they say like, I must have missed it, but like why the people were on the train or did this, they- I had no idea. Okay. Cause what? I just thought I might've missed it. Because, like, they said that, like, everyone froze, but these certain amount of people that were on the train were the last of humanity. And then uh, Curtis says later, he's like, we got shoved into the sales section, and we were there. And it's like, well, why did you, who, board, who ordained this border, boarding of the train in the first place? And who said, and you go here, you go, yeah. Like, yeah. everyone from every country just shoved into this train. And it must have been one, one location where everyone got on. <laughs> yeah, well, it yeah, must or, have been, or mm -hmm. or I kind of assumed that it was like a a, a train that you could get um, tickets on, and it was mm -hmm. just already going mm -hmm. when the catastrophe happened, mm -hmm. and whoever was on it currently got to survive, but that doesn't actually jive with how many people are on the train, especially what's happening at the back of the train. Mm -hmm. Certainly right. the, the front of the train, the idea of like who has tickets, and you buy certain classes of tickets, mm -hmm. almost has like a Titanic-esque mm -hmm. kind of feeling to it um but yeah the idea of like how many people are just like crammed onto the train and what chris evans says in that speech about um what it was like to get on the train uh, that i that i don't quite understand what what they're doing on there and when it might be there. like one of those uh one of those movies where like there's the last boat leaving uh whoever gets on survives sort of thing so it's um like last like, copter out of saigon this is the thing. last station that this is stopping at that sort of thing and everyone got shoved on and yeah, I kind be, of yeah. I assumed yeah. it was like a reverse Titanic situation <laughs> where they were just on, they were on the train, and then just because the the level of catastrophe of this natural mm -hmm. disaster and the fact that they're the only ones who are surviving, I feel like it was just people who were on the train already, and then it went on from there. Because I feel like if you have the option to board the train and you know it's your last hope, not many people, like people wouldn't opt to be in third class or at the back as many as there seem to have been that have developed yeah. is my theory unless it's the only way to survive but still 
Although Tilda Swinton does have a line about like the people who had tickets and then the people who are like hanger-ons or something. Or, freeloaders. Like, freeloaders. Freeloaders, yeah. right. So I wonder if like there were passengers on the train and it was just like a commercial train you could book. And then when the catastrophe happened, they stopped at a station and then people just like crammed on mm. maybe mm. is what's happening. True. I, I wouldn't have minded, I mean, as much as, you know, I don't think there should have been a monologue at the beginning and the end, a la Harvey Weinstein. I, I Maybe a little, little more context <laughs> in that written uh, prologue at the beginning maybe would have been helpful. But maybe it doesn't matter. I did have, so have one more thing that bothered me, and that's just because I'm a New Yorker and our trains break all the time. The fact that those, like, lines, nothing was wrong with them except for, like, some <laughs> snow buildup, I'm like, that's a lie. Like, yeah. like that's a complete lie but yeah. whatever i can like suspend my disbelief see i i do believe that there would be like a uh, if this was a longer like they're making a television series and i wonder if they're going to address some of these kind of things but there probably is some sort of system where they like find a person to sacrifice to be the person who goes out and clears the tracks right and mm. so like they die so that the people on the train can continue to live because the train can continue to run but um, would be a certain person they would basically kick off the train in That'd order be to one see. person. <laughs> well, good for to be the kids that were supposedly running the engine. Oh yeah, there you go. You get no. too old, then you get kicked off the train to go through the tracks. Too. There you go. Nicole solved it, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> so when when the world freezes over, when we want to have an evil train, Nicole's who we're turning to. At the front of the train. That's disconcerting that I'm the evil one now. Has anyone ever seen um, the YouTube show series Every Frame of Painting? Yes. Um, so, so, yeah, so for people who haven't, there's an episode, and I'm probably butchering this, but basically he talks about um, how Bong Juho really uses the sides of the frame, I guess. And so, like, every time Chris, dang it, Curtis, um, is thinking about moving forward or, like, sees an opportunity forward, he's on the right side of the frame. And then when he's looking back, he's mm -hmm. on the left. So like when that Scottish, Irish, British dude dies, something Jamie Bell. Bell. Jamie Bell. Jamie Bell. Jamie Bell. Love of my dies. life, Jamie Bell. So when he dies, um, Chris Evans looks to the left of the screen to see him being held up. And then he sees um, Hilda Swinton being put, like moving away on the right. And he decides he needs to move forward and he goes to the right. I'm completely on the wrong side, but whatever. Um, but like... It's just kind of like the back and forward of the train and every time he sees like an opportunity it's like left and right as opposed to like front and back if that makes sense i just like seeing it again was just like really fascinating in that sense i mean that tracks because he did something similar in parasite yeah it's up and down i think yeah or i think it is still i think it's more like a disjointed one half mm -hmm. of the yeah. either way in mm -hmm. parasite where here it's very clearly one or the other yeah, I mean, there. This film definitely shares a lot with *Parasite*. Um, obviously, *Parasite*'s a little bit more subtle, not being a genre <laughs> film, first of all. But um, does anyone want to talk about like some of the similarities and differences that they saw in terms of the evolution of a filmmaker? I haven't seen *Parasite*. <gasps> what? So neither no have I. I know. <laughs> yeah, no spoilers. <laughs> oh, I'm just putting my earbuds deeper into my ears. I, I think he has a lot more art and a lot more forethought, a lot more, um, like he's definitely improved um, from Snowpiercer, like a lot. I, I feel like Snowpiercer is, is really good, but Parasite is really up there. Um, 
with the storytelling in general. Yeah, I will say, oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, I thought there's a lot of like gorgeous shots. Like one of my favorite shots was like when Chris Evans, uh, Curtis was in the um, Wilfred's uh, office and it was like, there's sort of like a halo of like white light and he's like looking out into where people are fighting and it looks like very hell-like. And there's just like a lot of technically amazing shots, but some of the action scenes I kind of couldn't follow. Like there was like, people would like land a certain way and all of a sudden they would be in a different place. So I thought there were some of the action scenes were just very, muddled and like Parasite was obviously like a masterpiece and like everything there was just so cleanly shot so this one I was kind of surprised at the action I was like wait I thought that person like fell over there how are they able to stab this person from this position mm -hmm. and I mean there were some really great action scenes like the scene with the the torches I thought that was a very inventive and very um interesting and thrilling sequence but there were some of the sequences where it's like wait who what um so that was a little surprising <laughs> I was just gonna say, um, and maybe I just haven't seen Parasite in a little while, but it felt like Snowpiercer was a little more on the nose in terms of like the class struggle. Like very obviously Parasite is about a class struggle, but like, mm -hmm. as you will see, it goes a little deeper than that to not spoil anyone who's listening or talking. Um, but it just felt like a lot more subtle and kind of like uh, more nuanced in terms of how it kind of like portrayed it. Um, as opposed to like Chris Evans eating babies. In <laughs> yeah, I think that the the sort of delineation of morality as it pertains to class is mm -hmm. a little bit more complex, and not a little bit, a lot more complex in Parasite. And part of that is that in Snowpiercer, the class divide is like a big, or the train is one big metaphor for the class divide. And so it's like really sort of boiled down to a simplistic imagery of the class system. Um, whereas Parasite is a lot more complex because it's just zoomed in and more, and more realistic. Um, but Parasite doesn't have quite as clear a delineation of like the good guys are at the back and they're just doing what they can do to survive. And the good guys and the bad guys are at the front there's a little bit more um, complexity and then a little bit more, um, especially because in this, the sort of all powerful rich people um, are the ones doing the um, very specific oppression <clears throat> of the other people. Whereas in Paris that you've got um, people who are sort of just living their lives, enjoying the privilege of, of that comes with inequality, but they're not actively mm. creating it in the quite the same way. So it's a little bit more muddled in a complex um, more relatable way um, but this is like because it's a genre film and because it's a, a it is sort of a simplistic metaphor um, that I found very evocative um, but it is a metaphor so it's a little simpler a little clearer but how about that speech right that I was the guy I was the man with the knife speech oh. gets me every time Chris <laughs> Evans eats babies <laughs> And kills their mother for it. For it. Yeah. He it doesn't. Tastes best. He didn't eat the baby Brie. That was the point. He didn't. No, he did eat, eat no, babies. No, he did eat baby. He didn't eat other. He didn't eat Edgar. But he didn't eat Edgar. Yeah. He didn't eat that baby. <laughs> One particular baby. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I was really interested in how that speech sort of switched the valence of the earlier uh, discussion about how can you be a true leader when you've got two good arms. Mm -hmm. Um, and that in a way the powers that be had, had already switched that balance from, uh, so that people missing an arm 
like missing a limb meant that you had done a criminal act. Mm. Uh, At first, very, yeah. That's very... Mm -hmm. that's was how we mm -hmm. first perceived it. Yeah. Uh, but realizing that it was sort of the opposite, they'd done this sort of, it was a heroic act initially. Um, and then totally undermined it 10 minutes later, but... <laughs> Well, but then he like loses a limb because he saves that kid, yeah. uh, Timmy, who would not look up. Um, which, <laughs> yeah, which was a nice kind of like. Yeah. Nothing Timmy does doesn't even <laughs> remotely resembles anyone paying attention to what he's being told. <laughs> all, of this is, all of this is Timmy's fault. <laughs> well, here's a question: what What's happening with Andy? The kid was he just brainwashed so much that he wouldn't listen to save himself, and he just kind of continued on. Um, I mean, like Timmy wouldn't like move from his hidey like hole. Yeah, yeah they but eventually he like just it. pulled him out. <laughs> I think a lot of it is brainwashing because even when in the scene with the teacher. It's very culty. Yeah. Oh yeah, that little very blonde girl is scary. <laughs> <laughs> so I would 110% believe that before they're set to work, they're told something along the lines of it's the sacred engine. You'll be, you'll be doing what you can to keep all of your family members alive. You have to do this. It becomes this very Stockholm syndrome, mm -hmm. Stockholm syndrome E, very brainwashy. You have to do what you can to keep thousands of people alive. So you're the only one who can do X task. Here you go, kid. And that's that's basically what they believe that their life is. They believe that they're called to a higher purpose at that point. And um, uh, Tilda Swinton is actually when you actually see the mo the the kid is doing this mo this movement mm -hmm. and with his uh, wrist for the people that can't see what I'm doing. Um, um, and that's what Tilda Swinton was doing earlier in the movie when talking about the shoe and the hat and the head. So Tilda was probably one of those children. Well, she um, was doing Yeah. Hmm. No, but um, I think so, Tilda's too old to be one of those children. Yeah, because it was 17 yeah. years. It's been 17 years. And never mind, I take my woe back. Yeah, that's weird. <laughs> yeah. But it's weird so that that's, that... that was the movement that she was doing a lot. So I don't know if that's, maybe she teaches them that. Maybe that's what it is. Like that was my thought. Yeah. It was hmm. more like okay. she... I could imagine her taking the place of the teacher. Mm. And then as some of the children that she taught grew older, they mm. started into that role and she became the minister mm -hmm. because she was even doing it with the songs that they were singing, the words, not even just emotions. She, she knew every little part of their curriculum as it was happening. Mm -hmm. So I would, I would imagine that it was more of like a, she graduated into her position and some of her students graduated into fill the holes left by her. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, I thought that more like, one of the coolest things with this was seeing like a dystopian environment that's within like temporal reach of where we are now because it's only 17 years past like our quote unquote present and like people are just starting to come into adulthood who were born on the train or like the train babies. So when you see someone like Tilda Swinton's character you can kind of connect the dots to think of like what kind of human was she 17 years prior when she was still like a fully functioning adult, like probably in her thirties mm. or 40s, because she seems insane <laughs> in this, but like it hasn't been that long. Or is that just what confinement does to you? Because maybe it does. We'll see. In like I don't two know weeks. why else you would pull out your teeth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I would have loved to also see like not only with the Tilden Swinton character, but the uh, the teacher character. Cause, oh, like, Allison? Yeah, like, what in the world? Um, just from how she went from, like, slightly, like, 
when she's singing the song, her face looks slightly orgasmic, which was kind of creepy in itself. <laughs> um, and then she just went to like Stone Cold Killer. It's it was such an interesting like turn of turn of coin turn of coin mm-hmm. I don't know um, change that it was just like what kind of went how did she grow up and like what happened to her? But then she also pulled out a gun and oh yeah, just like how quickly she was like yeah. able to go from like super creepy to like you're gonna die. Yeah. Well, she actually- I think that's all uh, like wrapped up in this idea of the the engine being divine, right? It's a commentary on relig- religious fanaticism and the incredible uh, horrors that will perpetrate on other people in the name of religion if we're indoctrinated enough. And that idea of the holy, I think, is um, like central to a lot of the crazy things we see um, in specifically the front part of the train. Big time. Even down to what she's wearing. She's wearing what you would, stereotypical flower dress, very conservative, is exactly what you would think of when you think religious fanaticism to the level of like Waco or Ruby Ridge. Like, this is the type of outfit that you would think of um, as pigeonholing that religious, like the really religious cult-esque type stuff. So even she has her own type of uniform, Mm -hmm. even to the same degree, I think, as the kids who are literally wearing uniforms. Yeah. Um, So to me, that kind of spoke volumes. And she even goes from, at first, when she enters the scene, I'm like, oh, this is really cute. It's a very 1950s, except for wife-ish type thing. And then it started getting creepy, cult-like. And then, so it was a shift. It was a fairly gradual shift from step 30, this is kind of disarming, to super creepy, cult-esque, and then cold-blooded killer where you start to actually be scared. Yeah. To go back to something we were talking about earlier, but along the same lines with the religious indoctrination, Nicole, earlier you were saying something about um, the way that the kids are taught, like you are in charge of keeping everyone alive. Like you're, if you stop this, everyone will die. It's complicated because on one hand, they're being treated as slaves and the subjugation of the people in the back of the train and all of this is like a corrupt society but at the same time when they stop the engine all those people do die so we're in now a moral conundrum right because is it worth it to overthrow or destroy the corrupt society if doing so destroys all the innocents living within said society it feels almost biblical like noah's ark it's you for know, like, sure, yeah. I'm yeah. sure it's based on Noah's Ark. Yeah. So. Where my brain went was Town, the musical. <laughs> so it's basically, it has the exact same conclusion where you think, since you're identifying with the like heroes, that once oppression is conquered, then good things will happen. But then it just kind of brings to light that even though they were oppressing this certain faction of people, at the same time, they were, I guess, to sort of misquote the movie keeping balance and maintaining order in a way that very imperfectly kept life going but yeah then they're just left at the end to be eaten by a polar bear because they don't yeah, have that's a very, it's the a train very, anymore it's a very common thread in dystopians to start with a like trying to be a utopia um and then what happens is you have so much freedom that eventually things start screwing up 
and you need some more security and eventually you have too much security or there's this all this balance that or imbalance that starts happening well, balance and, then, is a very and then you get a dystopia balance is like the one thing all of these people are super super focused mm -hmm. on to the point where they're taking minute by minute tallies of what it will take to balance out the closed ecosystem so i mean the two like i said the two themes i got were the you know fable of the belly coriolanus type nonsense and then on top of that the this whole obsession really with keeping everything balanced and then what happens when it's not balanced and then you know at the end balance be damned well yeah what do you what do you think about that decision in the end though um that like an, they made an executive decision on behalf of the entire population of the train does anyone have an opinion morally speaking about the uh executive decision taken by these what three heroes mm. i thought it was short-sighted but yeah i like government. didn't feel <laughs> i didn't feel like they so much were like, oh, we're going to like destroy the train as much as he was like, I'm going to get off this train and like figure mm -hmm. things out. And then the fact that like the rest of the train kind of blew up was like, oops. Um, but it, it, yeah, it definitely seemed like a short sighted plan where it's like, okay, like we'll get out and we'll be fine. Not realizing like the implication of what actually could fully happen. And then they killed everyone, including the kids who got eaten by the polar bear. <laughs> But that Chris Evan allowed that to happen, I guess, is, I guess, more of a question of, of the whole film. Yeah, you've got two yeah. things happening at once, yeah. right? You've got um, the guy whose name I don't know, the guy who's in Parasite, um, who blew up the door to l save his daughter. Man. And then he also, you've also got Chris Evans stopping the engine. Mm -hmm. um, and both those two things together created sort of ultimate destruction but both of those things were heroic acts to save specific other human beings yeah at the cost of the majority <laughs> it's a little bit of a trolley problem it's i don't know if all of humanity was on one of the tracks <laughs> yeah exactly and like three people were on the other side but in order to save humanity you have to like actively enslave children so like eh, you know <laughs> hard to say <laughs> isn't no i was gonna say that's like a ursula Le Guin story but it's not the exact same that's like if all of humanity was happy in uh those who escape from omelas i think but like it's less like everyone will die or these three children will live versus like everyone will be happy but i don't know I wonder if the rest of humanity was dead. Like, we only have, like, Wilford's word that everyone's on the train. Like, people could be in a bunker. Like, I mean, I don't know. I, I think my big thing with this movie was, like, Kelly, you mentioned earlier, there's the TV show. I think they had so many interesting points they touched that they didn't expand on that, like, I feel like a TV show could do it more justice. Because, like, I'm like, yeah. there could be people out there. There's a polar bear out there. What else is out in yeah. the world? That's very true. That's, That's very, very, very true. Point. Yeah, it, it's basically, and that goes kind of to that cult, the cult thing, mm -hmm. is that we're all basically taking all of this on blind faith that Wilford really does know everything. Like, yeah, he is this divine entity. Is that we're 
basically listening to him saying it's a closed ecosystem. This is all the life there is. Like the world literally revolves around this train. Thus the, the New Year's holiday being celebrated when they're on that bridge. Um, so I think that's an excellent point. That yeah. It's like Kimmy, Kimmy Schmidt or, um, yeah, yeah. Kimmy Schmidt or like the village or any of those things where they're all told that like, Mm -hmm. there is no 10 Cloverfield lane where they're told like, if you leave this, the safety of this oppressive little world we've built for you Mm -hmm. or Brigsby bear, same thing, right? Um, you will, you will die if you leave. And in all of those different cases, um, there's a different answer to whether or not it is actually safe out there. I would love to do the village. Yeah. If Kimmy popped up out of this this TV show, I will be a very happy camper. That would make for some really strange TV. Hey, it's an interesting one because the world is so interesting, right? And like, that's what makes a great TV show is an interesting world that you can tell infinite stories within. And the only things I know about it are supposed to come out in quarter two of uh, 2020. So who knows if it actually will happen because, you know, the world's ending. Um, and it has a uh, David Diggs in it. So that's good news. Nice. Yeah. Also, maybe they could do like a, a crossover with Kimmy Schmidt because he's in Kimmy Schmidt, isn't he? <laughs> well, yes, he is. He's, a, he's like, yes. Cute, the, yeah. He's like a, is he a teacher or st- I think student? so. Yeah. Or he's a professor. Yeah. Or something. Yeah. Yeah. She meets him at this school. Yeah. Stuff. I like this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So does anybody have anything else they want to say about Snowpiercer before we sign off for the evening? Does anyone actually believe it's a sequel to Willy Wonka? I mean, a little That bit. seems to be a thing. Wait, what? <laughs> Can you elaborate really on this? dark sequel. <laughs> yeah, there's I could like see a, it. Elaborate, like as, as soon as I Googled it, just to get some background on the movie, everything that came up was just the parallels between Snowpiercer and Willy Wonka. And I think if anything, it's more of something that you can like draw comparisons between, but there's a very like distinct fan theory that it's an actual continuation in that Ed Harris is like grown up Wonka and he abused all the technology that he got when he inherited the factory to like build the train and that the little compartment underneath is the size it is because it was supposed to be Oompa Loompas, but then they died out, so that's why they had to use kids. And that's why there's W's all over the place. And he like took on yeah, it's very it's very in depth. Wow. Well I accept that it's very in depth. He did explain that there was a piece that got extinct. So it wasn't there was never Oompa Loompas supposed to be there. Oh maybe there was, the a, there was a piece, piece that broke and that's why they have they have the, the kids in there. <laughs> Um, I I could see it. It certainly I could I could see a world in which it was based on Willy Wonka. Weirdly, <laughs> like it has a lot of the same story beats. <laughs> yeah, and I don't think it's actually a sequel. I think there's a lot of comparisons, and also just I think one of the most fascinating um, parallels is when you compare Willy Wonka to Dante's Inferno. So I kind of went into this with that in the back of my mind, just <laughs> as like a journey through hell. And just seeing how every self-contained environment was kind of a representation of something different insofar as how it tortured people. So that was cool. That's very interesting, actually. Yeah, Dante's yeah. Inferno seems like a much more interesting illusion than Willy Wonka to me. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> you keep Roald Dahl's name out of your mouth, Steve. <laughs> They're like, somebody let me audit a class so I can write this paper now. <laughs> Let's face it, that paper's already been written. Yeah, I wrote my great poem. <laughs> yeah, it probably has. English essay between Willy Wonte. Mm-hmm. 
I like it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Any more closing thoughts about Snowpiercer, Bong Joon Ho, and Number One Chris? I just think the train shouldn't have been wobbling at all during those while it's crashing through the ice and all that. Mm. That train should have been solid. <laughs> and like there should have been no question that that's going to last forever. That's what mm. I think. That's that's about it. Well, it wasn't designed. Very excited. <laughs> oh, it, like if, if the engine is is there to last forever, then I would assume the train is too. That's yeah. Mm. Well, it's interesting that the engine's supposed to last forever. Now that you say that, um, when like if it was supposed to be potentially a luxury liner that like some people had tickets and some people didn't like was it kind of like the titanic was unsinkable and like they didn't think they'd ever have to test that the engine would last forever kind of thing or just like and it was just like a marketing claim or like they were like well everything's going to hell this is going to last us forever but we're not going to care about the actual infrastructure of the train just the engine that's very possible especially because like clearly with what he's doing with the enslaved children he's doing anything he can to perpetuate what is obviously a lie because mm -hmm. it broke down so it's not going to last forever naturally right that's that's a good point. Lies. i like it <laughs> that's my catchphrase now <laughs> I, like I like it. it. Well, that's what I—that's generally what I feel about Snowpiercer, right? You come away from it <laughs> and like, I, you know, I've got a lot to say, but at the end of the day, hey, I like it. It's good, good, good movie. <laughs> very, uh, very disarmed at the end of it. I'm like, now I'm just sad. And anyone who knows me knows that that's not usually my state. <laughs> I'm mm -hmm. usually a very happy person. So when afterward, I'm like, I need to go cry in a hole now. Oh, man. This was like one of the happier ones we've done so far. <laughs> we've done like exclusively <laughs> just these like sad, terrible movies about the Which end of the world and like crippling depression. Only in two of them so far. <laughs> Don't worry, guys. We're, we're I think Clueless is next. It so, is. I'm yeah. about this. <laughs> Things are looking up. <laughs> Is that also the theme of dystopia? Or are we good in that? I didn't we'll mean <laughs> to make them all the theme of dystopia. Network. It's just that that's what was on Netflix. It's the theme of everyone going to the beach right now. And by uh, on Netflix, we mean on Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there was something to, yeah. Yeah, Netflix Canada. Netflix Canada has way more good stuff than Netflix yeah, America is what we're discovering. This is what I'm saying. Yep. You guys are getting Ghibli. I'm very jealous. Oh, yeah. It's fine. We have HBO Max eventually. Yeah. I mean, we have access to HBO. You know that, right? Oh, tell us. <laughs> <laughs> That's just making us feel worse. Yeah. Sorry, guys. How are you surviving New York? Are you okay in New York? I'm worried. So-so. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, Okay. Well, everybody Fair stay enough. safe out there. Thanks for joining in this one and we'll do a more fun one next time. Okay. Bye. Bye. Number one, Bye. Chris. Bye. <laughs>